The Appalachian Mountains have a storied history woven together by decades of people who've often and proudly lived on the fringes. Here, we're all a little unconventional in our own right. Fringe Appalachia exists to demystify the other, whether they be in our midst or outside of our comfort zones. From the old timers still living off the grid to the snake handlers, halfbacks, and dreaded Southern Democrats, you're all welcome here on the fringes. Welcome everyone to another episode of Fringe Appalachia. This week I am super excited to welcome a friend of mine, author, mother, educator, woman extraordinaire, Chelsea Wilson Thayer. Chelsea recently wrote a children's book all about Appalachia. It has some of my favorite things in it, cornbread, lightning bugs, chickens, all the fixins, basically. And she's going to talk with us a little bit today about her experience as an Appalachian woman and her love for this place that we call home. So stick around, hear a little bit from Chelsea Wilson Thayer. I am Chelsea Wilson Thayer. I'm a theater educator, wife, mother of four, live in rural Appalachia, um, run Shoes and Cut on a Christmas tree farm that's been in my family for three generations, and I'm also a writer. No big deal. <laughs> so talk about your family history first. Tell us about, you said three generations on the Christmas tree farm. Three generations yeah. on the Christmas tree farm, but the land that my family currently lives on has been in my family for over 200 years. Um, I'm ninth generation rural Appalachian girl. Um, so my kiddos have been here now. So 10, 10th generation with my kiddos coming up. Um, and the, the land that's been in my family has been a lot of different things. It was a tobacco farm for much of the 1800s into the early 1900s. It was also an apple orchard. And then in the 1960s, my grandfather, Homer Tom Wilson, and his brother, Jack Wilson, decided they would venture into a Christmas tree farm. So in 1968, they started Snow Creek Christmas Trees. And at that time, you could go up on Roan Mountain where Fraser firs are grown naturally, and you could hand pick them. They would let growers go up there once a year. And uh, North Carolina at one time was maybe second in the nation as far as Christmas tree production, but they are still number one in the nation for Fraser firs. Um, so I'm pretty proud of our little Christmas tree farm. As you can see, I just ramb yeah. I'll ramble on about Christmas <laughs> trees for a while if you get me going. <laughs> That's awesome. Do you like the Taylor Swift song? Christmas oh, tree I farm? do. I did hear that song. It was very sweet. It is very sweet. Okay, so we want to talk about your book. Tell us about the book. So my children's book just came out on June 15th. It's called The Patchwork Princess. It is, well, you know, it's about a Christmas tree farm. It's about a little girl who fancies herself a, a princess, um, but she and her family live on a Christmas tree farm and grow vegetables, and she swings on tire swings, and she's not afraid of snakes and um, grows vegetables, makes, you know, crowns of flowers out of Queen Anne's lace and eats her mama's cornbread, and it's um, it's really sweet. I tried to embody all the things I love about an Appalachian childhood. I wrote it when my daughter was in kindergarten, and now she's going into seventh grade. So the process of, um, you know, really 
getting it published and edited and designed and illustrated, it was about a six-year process to bring it to fruition. That's so cool, and it's beautiful. Thank the you. The illustrations are beautiful. Everything is beautiful. I wanted a book that was gift-worthy, yeah. and I feel like it is. For I, sure. And it really captures, um, you know, the Blue Ridge Mountains and Tow River Valley area. Yeah, and so tell talk a little bit more about like the overall message of the book. Absolutely. Um, so Pippa, the character in the book, or Philippa Jane, she goes by Pippa. She fancies herself a princess, but she is a farm girl. And so there's a lot of metaphors throughout the book. I think teachers are going to enjoy using it in their classrooms because her soldiers are Christmas trees. And her loyal subjects are her vegetables. Like she talks about the eyes of potatoes and the lines of tomatoes making the faces of her peasants. Um, and her, her crown is Queen Anne's lace. But then towards the end of the book, she starts feeling a little down on herself, a little glum because she thinks of herself as this regal princess, but she's a farm girl and she doesn't have a gown. And so at the end of the book, she gets a little teary eyed talking to her mom that she doesn't have a gown. Um, but throughout the book, you see her mom in the background of several pages quilting, or you think she's quilting. Um, but what she's really making is a patchwork gown for her patchwork princess. And so I think there's a message in the end Philippa Jane, Pippa, she realizes, you know, a princess, well, you know what, I'm just going to quote the book because I have it memorized anyway. A princess is not defined by her castle nor by the clothes that she wears. It's what lies in her heart that sets her apart and how much she shows that she cares. And then from behind her back, she unfolded that sweet, sneaky mama of mine, a gown that was made from scraps of fabric she'd saved and stitched with some love and some time. A patchwork gown that was perfect, just perfect for a princess like me. So you may call me Pippa the Patchwork Princess. There's no one I'd rather be. I love it. That's so good. <laughs> that was a, little, a little mini read aloud. We'll I love it. it. <laughs> Not even read aloud, just memorize aloud. That's so awesome. So you're the first woman from Appalachia that I'm interviewing, oh. which I've only interviewed three people so far. But oh, you're this the is first an honor. Woman. Awesome. And so I would love to hear more about your perspective because... My favorite part about the book is that the mother um, at the end is kind of like coming in solidarity with her in shared experience and also mm -hmm. encouraging her in her experience. And I've always found it super unique that um, we live in an area that even though maybe officially it's not true, but there's this undertone of matriarchs really mm -hmm. being a driving force in, in families in this area. So I'd love to hear your perspective on being a woman in Appalachia and how that's impacted your life. Wow. Okay. Um, I think what you say about the matriarch of the family is key because when I think of my memories growing up and I think of rural Appalachia, the first person that comes to my mind I'm going to pause because I'm like about to cry. Um, it's my grandmother, my Granny Sue, and she passed away in 2017, uh, the day before her 102nd birthday. Um, but when I think of rural Appalachia, I think of strong Appalachian women, you know, and I think of grit and determination and hard work um, and being um, resourceful and um, being skilled at so many different things. Uh, you know, just growing up on a Christmas tree farm, Granny Sue, she was the one who really 
drove the choose and cut business. You know, people talk about they remember coming to her house and she always had cookies ready and letting kids swing on her tire swing. Um, I remember her canning pickles in the end of summer in August every year. Um, and the way that she took care of everyone. I remember learning how to make homemade biscuits with her and uh, cornbread, which also comes up in my book, but good skillet cornbread. You know, we're talking that black iron skillet that's probably been passed down for generations. And, oh, oh, you got to heat that oil first, put it in the (laughs) oven. Then when you pour the corn, oh, my gosh, and it sizzles. Just just crispy on the outside. Or there's nothing like it with a big old slap of butter. Um. Gosh, we could we could just do a podcast yeah, about, about food. food. Can we do food next? Food. We're gonna do food next. Um, but my memories of her, um, they you know you carry them with you even after people leave. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think being a woman in Appalachia, what a what a I don't know what a gift to live in this beautiful area. But I think it um, it reminds me what women are capable of. Yeah, we're strong. We come, I mean, my family in particular, and so many people here that call the Appalachian Mountains home are from Scots-Irish descent. Mm -hmm. Um, But my family in particular was Scottish when they came in the 1700s. Um, And so you think of the rugged highlands of Scotland, and they came to the Appalachian Mountains because it reminded them of home. Mm -hmm. But you have to have a certain um, amount of grit and determination and you have to be strong-willed to live in a, to be able to make it Mm -hmm. in an area like this with the harsh winters. And when I think of Appalachian women, I think of strong-willed women who are willing to speak their mind. I don't think of, you know, delicate Southern magnolias. I think of something, a whole different breed of ladies. Yeah. When people who are not from the South, I feel like when they think of stereotypical Southern women, they think of like a debutante or like a stereotypical homemaker. And yes. I think that that has been a surprise for a lot of people that I've encountered in my life who um, don't have the same context we have and being yeah. from here that um, in a lot of ways, Appalachian women are like in charge. Oh, they're in charge. <laughs> They'll wring the neck on the chicken without yeah. blinking an eye because yeah. they've got work, they've got work to do. And yeah. I think <laughs> in current, in current culture, I'm sure you, in being um, a woman and who works, (laughs) you've run into sometimes that um, ingrained, like, strong-willed spirit, I can do this, independence, all of that can be met with pushback um, because you are a woman. So I've personally experienced that in my professional life. Have you ever experienced any kind of pushback to this, like, foundation that you have? Um, as a woman and maybe that not being as well received in some aspects of culture. <laughs> she's smiling. She's <laughs> nodding. <laughs> she's thinking. Um, you know, and I don't know. Sometimes I wonder, I'm like, oh, is it just me? Am I just extremely independent personally as an individual? Is it ingrained in us as Appalachian women? Um, but I have definitely felt, uh, yeah, I, I've seen the shock and surprise on people's face on multiple occasions yeah. when I'm willing to stand up and speak my mind or disagree um, as opposed to just going along. Um, I think moving to New York when I was 21 years old mm-hmm. um, made me realize how much grit and determination I was able to carry with me mm-hmm. from where I came from. Um, 
and it taught me a lot about perceptions of Appalachian people and the perceptions of Southerners and how I needed to combat those. Um, I did a lot of code switching. Uh, you know, I would talk on the phone to my Granny Sue, and I would, oh, yeah, I'm going over yonder. I've <laughs> got to get to class today. And then I would, you know, change my voice, get to class, and have to really be as eloquent and sound as articulate as I possibly could to combat what people thought someone from rural Appalachia would sound like or would know or would be capable of. Um, I wanted to prove them all wrong. Yeah, and a lot of that, at least for me, is subconscious in how I talk. Yes. I don't even realize what's happening, but it's such a deeply ingrained stereotype mm -hmm. that like our brains already know this is this is elevated place. This is not comfortable mm -hmm. place. So mm -hmm. you, you have to talk a certain way or you're going to be received a certain way. Yep. Yeah. Completely subconscious. I don't think I ever realize it until my children point it out to me. And I think I realized it. I remember having a conversation with my dad because we lived for part of my childhood in Marietta, Georgia, where my mom is from, though his family has all it was from here so you know coming up to the mountains as a child we came up on weekends we spent the summer we came up for Christmas and holidays um but we never moved here until I was just turning 13 um and my dad took over the Christmas tree farm when my grandfather passed away um and so coming up and moving here I would say after we walked away from whenever, wherever dad was having conversations that seemed like they lasted forever. And I would say, oh my goodness, I didn't think you were going to stop talking. And why were you talking like that? And he would say, like what? And my brother and I, Michael, we, we would be like, you talk differently here <laughs> than you do in Georgia. Or you talk differently here than you do when we hear you on a business phone call. Um, and, it, you know, that was so funny to me but then I found myself doing it years later um because it's just it's just what you do when when you move in different circles um yeah. for sure I think that's got to be a shared experience of people like us my mom we used to make fun of her on her voicemail recordings because it would be like hello you have reached the oh. voicemail <laughs> and then afterwards she'd be like y'all come in here Jens come in here dinner's ready yeah <laughs> so we would make fun of her for that and then my friends in college pointed it out to me they were like we don't have to ask who you're talking on the phone to we know it's your mom <laughs> yep I love it okay so um Appalachian stereotypes the one that has come up consistently is the one about how we talk and how that affects level of intelligence mm -hmm. um what other Appalachian stereotypes do you have been associated with you or do you find to be true or untrue well I don't know I I find myself I I get frustrated at Appalachian stereotypes frequently because I feel like my own experience is contrary to so many of them, um, particularly books like when Hillbilly Elegy came out several years ago, we read it as a book club, um, a group of ladies that we get together once a month, and it was our book club read, and I felt like our conversation after reading that particular book was so fiery because it was infuriating to me that this person, um, J.D. Vance, who wrote the book, you know, he really laid into the stereotypes of like the welfare queen and the trailer parks and the drug addicts and 
you know, cyclical poverty is so real and so prevalent. And I see it here every day as a teacher, especially more so than I ever realized when I was growing up here. Now I really see it. Um, but, but I think there's a beauty and a simplicity and an eloquence to mountain living that so often people forget. And hillbilly elegy, you know, it goes off in that one direction and it only shows that one um, perspective. And it was particularly frustrating to read because he actually never lived in rural Appalachia. His grandparents were from there and moved <laughs> to the suburbs of like Cincinnati, Ohio. So I'm like, you Same thing, never, right? <laughs> li- yeah, never lived in rural Appalachia. You maybe visited there. Sure, you drove through there a few times and went to see your cousins in the summer. But it's so hard, I think, for someone who's never lived in the culture you maybe only see one side of the culture Mm -hmm. um or it's easy to to pick one thing and then just try to drive that home but I think you know they're just like every place in the world there's so many perspectives and there's so many facets and there are so many things that um that yes it is a rural place and yes these are title one schools and yes are you know, median income for Mitchell County, I think, is $25,000 per person. Um, but there is so much more. And there's a, a wealth and a richness to the culture of Appalachia that I could never get anywhere else. And having lived other places, um, I couldn't help but want to move back. I would cry when we would fly back to home like when we lived in New York City then Texas then St. Louis Missouri then back to Texas then just outside of Nashville Tennessee and Franklin Tennessee before we made our way back to the mountains and every time we would leave the mountains after visiting it was harder and harder until I was like I can't live anywhere else I have to move back um and Like, sure, I don't have, you know, the city lights and the conveniences of the suburbs, but I have so much more. You know, I have the fireflies at night. They put on a really good show in the summertime. And I have the creeks for my kids to play in. And I have the joy of working with my hands and working, living on the farm that's been in my family. When I walk around our farm and I try to walk the boundary lines once a year, Maybe every other year because we have 80 acres, so it's really hard to walk the whole <laughs> the whole boundary. But I'll walk it with my kids, and I and I imagine my grandfather and great grandfather and great great grandfather and grandmothers too walking those boundary lines. And I see like the stacks of rocks that mark the boundary lines on some of the corners, and I think, who stacked that up? And where in the heck did they get those rocks? Like, did they carry them up from the creek? That is a long walk. Did, it, did they use a mule to, you know, to yeah. carry the rock? Like, I think of all those things. And, um, and there's such a beauty here that I think unless you grew up here or spend a significant amount of time in rural Appalachia, it is easy to see one side and not see um, all that it can be and what a place to raise kids too I mean like that's why we that's yeah. why we came back is because I wanted the kids to experience life here and not just like there are other places in the world with mountains there are other places in the world with the landscape but there are not other places in the world where like they can belong so mm-hmm. deeply you know mm-hmm. that we um went to Bear Creek decoration and oh yeah I, you might have seen the picture of Hollis but um 
she was with her like fourth great grandpa who was the first man in Mitchell County to drive a car. And yes, I was like, how I many saw people that. in this like melting pot of a country can yeah. say, yeah, I know we're like seven generations of, I'm, I live in the same place where mm-hmm. seven generations of my family are buried. And a lot of times that can be like frowned upon as like being stuck in one place, mm-hmm. not branching out, whatever. Um, but the value of that, especially in childhood, I mm-hmm. think has made me who I am, made you who you are. So I'm Absolutely. glad my kids can be here for it. And then they can go wherever they want. <laughs> yeah. And then, and that's what I tell my kids. I'm like, guys, I want you to go and see the world, get the best education you can possibly get, and then bring all of that education and experience back to Mitchell County and make a difference. For a while, I used to call DIY, like, done in years past. Like, it's this oh. new trendy thing, but, like, it's literally what people we just did do. before yeah. us, <laughs> you know? So, like, just do it ourselves. This yeah. whole idea of, like, oh, if you cloth diaper your children, you're a big hippie. And I'm like, no, my granny cloth diapered her children yeah. because, like, that's what, that's they, what had. they did. Or, like, if you compost, you're trying to combat global warming and you're a big hippie. And or it's you're like, making your garden better because like, that's a smart thing to do. No, yeah. my granny threw all the potato pills in the same place for yep. a reason. Yep. <laughs> like, that's what we use them for. Turn up the soil. And so maybe that in terms, in terms of, like, arts because uh-huh. we were talking a little bit about um how you work in the arts and maybe yeah. arts can be underserved in this region but there's such a strong history of the arts so like how do those two things fit together absolutely um you know it's funny because some people some folks you start talking about the arts or that you work in the arts or the fact that I work in theater and it it can be perceived different ways um but like you said this region and this area, and I feel like Appalachian people in general, are known for their storytelling ta- and folk tales, and um, and songs that tell stories, and you know, picking up a banjo or a fiddle or a guitar, and and that's the way that all of these things were passed down through oral tradition, and that's what theater is. You know, that's what I tell my students when they come into my theater one class, and I love teaching theater; it's my favorite. Um, and I feel so blessed that I get to teach it here in a rural area um, and in my home. So it's great. Um, but I tell my students, theater is storytelling. When you boil it all down, theater is telling a story. And so whatever we're creating on stage, we're thinking first and foremost, what is our message? And how are we telling a story? And I think we do that so well, just naturally where we where we live. Um I grew up with so many fun stories. My my granddaddy Homer always used to tell us a story about when he and his buddies decided they were going to skip school to go hunting. They didn't want to go to school that day. And, of course, this was in the times of the one-room schoolhouse with the big pot-bellied stove where all the kids would take turns bringing, like, sugar and cocoa and milk in the winter to make their hot chocolate on the stove. But he skipped school because he wanted to go hunting. And then they got sprayed by a po-cat. (laughs) and they got in such big trouble, and he, you know, I think he said, like, that his grandmother, um, my grandmother Lucinda tanned his hide, and he couldn't sit down for a week, and then he couldn't, they wouldn't let him go back in the schoolhouse because they smelled so bad that they had to wait for it. So I'm like, I think of all these stories that that were ingrained in me, and I think my love for theater kind of came out of um, my love of telling stories (laughs) and just wanting to to be a part of narratives and just hearing people's stories and telling people's stories. Um, 
it really is an area that's rich in arts. You know, we have so many craftspeople and um, artisans, but it's not the first thing you think about when you think of Appalachia. Um, and gosh, I would love, I would love for, to have more exposure. I think that's one of my goals as a theater practitioner. Um, I always say I'm, I'm first and foremost, I'm an artist as well as an educator. And what can I do to broaden perspectives, to bring more stories so that, you know, families and children can experience the art of live theater because really unless you go to Charlotte to see a Broadway show that's coming down or you travel you're not getting to see live theater um because we are a rural area and that does limit us as far as what um you know we don't have a big symphony coming to town or an orchestra and so we have to make those experiences available to our children and to our students um how can we expose them to the arts, expose them to the arts that have been in this area for generations that they just might not know about or have forgotten about. And then how do we expose them to other art forms too, just to broaden her perspectives and increase awareness. And, you know, the more we experience something, the more we appreciate it. So it's some people, you know, you say theater and their eyes glaze over <laughs> because they have no, they've not experienced live theater. They haven't experienced the art of storytelling um, in that way. And you have to experience it to really appreciate it, right? And so if I can give students and children and families the experience of live theater, um, we always do theater outreach in my theater one class, and I love it. I get so excited. We take a, a theater for young audiences production um, I've written the last two, actually, that we did. We did The Emperor's New Clothes year before last, and this year we um, the students helped write our own little puppetry production, but we present it for free to our community because we want those experiences to be available, and it's how we develop empathy, and it's how we learn, and it's how we see through um, through the eyes of others I think theater makes us more human. That is one thing that I think is the biggest challenge as an educator is sometimes I run into um, what do we do when parents don't want their kids to know too much? Mm -hmm. They don't want them to be too educated. Because when we know better, we have to do better. Mm -hmm. We have to change. We have to think and that's a challenge, especially when we're in a culture that is so set in our ways. And so many of them are so good. So many of them are the things that need to be held on to. Mm-hmm. I am going to can tomatoes the way my granny did because, by golly, she canned the best tomatoes. But I also have to realize that this way of thinking about a group of people or this word that was used or this phrase mm-hmm. is inappropriate and hurtful yeah even when those people are not around mm-hmm. to hear it because my children hear it yep and I have to think differently and so I think relearning restructuring our brains how we approach things and realizing um we can keep all of the things that are good and beautiful about where we live while 
opening our mind to the perspectives and ideas of others and realize that we that that's the only way we can grow as a community that's the only way we can grow with empathy and respect for other people is a willingness to listen to someone else's story and when we have that realization or that sting of guilt instead of lashing out or pushing it away being able to say wow I'm sorry I'm going to do better I'm going to work on this this is new for me. Yeah. You know, um, I think that's the greatest challenge, I think, for our country right now. Mm-hmm. There's a tendency to push away. I listen to this podcast and I love, and I've been trying to like apply it to how I speak to my kids. Mm. Um, she talked about n- she never uses the word but because it, is, it almost always creates this like <sighs> false. Um, <laughs> It sighed very loudly. creates this like false dichotomy that it has to be either or. And she was like, almost always substitute and and see how it changes what you're saying. Mm-hmm. So it, it's like, I want my children, speaking of mine in mm. particular, I want my children to glean everything positive from this place. And I want them to learn from other cultures and have respect for other people and you know what I mean yes and so that it's not like we respect the culture but we also do this it's like those two things go hand in hand you know like yeah they don't have to negate each other yeah they can complement each other right Mm -hmm. yeah I mean that's what that's what I want is I want when I lived away and I would say things that people thought were strange um, a lot of times it would be like a sideshow thing, like, hey, Jess, tell them how you talk to your mom. Like, do do your do your talk to your mom voice, you know? Right. And it was like a, a sideshow thing. Yeah, we do a parlor trick. Yeah, and I was like, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not your monkey. <laughs> like, and all, all I would want is, like, I would actually just like you to understand and appreciate the culture. That's what yeah. I would really like for you to do. Um, instead of just pick apart these little pieces of it that you like and that entertain you, you mm-hmm. know? And so... I think that's a cry of a lot of people in our area is, oh, don't come here and try to change us. Come here and learn from us. Understand us. And I think that's the cry of other cultures, too. And we're just now in Mm. current society because the world's getting smaller all at once with the Internet and everything. We're being exposed to more otherdom and we're having to make choices really quickly about, oh, so do we do we extend them the same courtesy? You know? Yes. (laughs) And so I think it's a both and like. Mm -hmm learning to appreciate ours and applying that same level of appreciation Mm -hmm. to to the new stuff. Yeah, welcome to the mountains, and now we can learn from each other. Whenever I meet people that have moved here, I honestly, I get so excited that I can't help but welcome them. And And I don't know, maybe because I moved here as a 13-year-old, even though my family had been here for generations and generations, my dad didn't bring our family back to the mountains, um, or he didn't return to the mountains and bring his family with him um, until he was in his mid to late 40s, I guess, um, because I was a 13-year-old. So I guess he was 47 maybe when we moved back. Um, And so I know what it feels like 
to be the new person, right? But whenever I see new families and new people moving to this area, I think they are moving here because it's a choice, right? They've seen something in this area, in the mountains that they loved and wanted to be a part of. So I I get really excited. And you know what? It's so funny. I think even if you've lived here your whole life, and even if your family's been here for nine generations back or however many it's been, I think we always get this sense. And maybe this is wherever you live, right? I think it's just human nature Mm -hmm. to sometimes feel like the outsider. Yeah. Right? You know, just whatever insecurities we have or you walk into a room and all of a sudden everyone stops talking. Mm -hmm. And the first thought in your mind is, yeah, they were talking about me, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And I think that's... um, I think that's just something we carry with us from grade school. I don't know, you know, yeah, because we experience that. So I don't know, but it, but you're right. Small communities, small towns, places that have been particularly isolated, isolated from the outside world for so long as rural Appalachia was. Um, maybe there's an increased sense, right? Mm-hmm. So even for me being gone 12 years and moving back, in my mind, I was moving back home, but that definitely is not how it was perceived by some. I, mm-hmm. I really overwhelmingly felt so welcomed yeah. to be back in the mountains and so thankful to be here and, um, and so loved by, by people who I'd missed um, and, and, you know, the people that were the reason that drew me back. My family, my parents are still here, um, but you still sometimes run into people where their thought is oh you had to go off to realize you liked it yeah no really I didn't but Mm -hmm. but I had to go off to realize who I was and how much I missed it you know and like so it's interesting I will never think differently or badly about someone I think because they go and explore and broaden their perspective before they return to the mountains, because I'm like, that is how we grow. That is how we live in a diverse world. How do we appreciate the diversity of others until we experience it? Um, until we meet people who are different than ourselves. Um, so people moving that move to the area from elsewhere, um, I get really excited because they bring a fresh perspective. And I think it, it definitely takes a level of determination and inventiveness if you want to call this area home particularly if you don't have you know a job that easily fits mm-hmm. right um like my husband works from home we've had to be really inventive and creative yeah. to live here and to call the Appalachian Mountains home the reason we live here is because we want to yeah it's been funny um since my husband is not necessarily from here and I grew up in the next county over even though my mom's family is here when we moved back um my immediate like territorial response especially if anybody kind of gave Kyle the outsider treatment (laughs) was like no no no, tell tell him who you are yeah (laughs) no tell him who I am tell him who mom is and and then her dad and then his parents and yeah and then (laughs) like this feeling of like needing to, to justify you know we're gonna have a class on our family history yeah, today I was like, no 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 you we are uh, we are from here you are part of me I am part of this yes <laughs> so it's almost like this need to like um 
that the burden of responsibility to quell anyone's suspicion mm-hmm. is on you, right? Because there's like this immediate kind of like almost suspicion, like who who are you and who do you yes. belong to? It's so funny that you said that because when I meet new people, I often say my name mm-hmm. and then I say, I'm Johnny Wilson's daughter because that kind of puts a stamp on it for me, right? Yep. Like, mm-hmm. well, they'll know who Johnny Wilson is in I my know. mind, at least. So I like. always say I'm Wayne Hall's granddaughter, not the county commissioner, the barber. <laughs> so that's my, that's my whole spiel too. I totally get it. Yeah. Um, but I did one time, my brother and I were at the orchard and, um, this old man we didn't know walked up to us. We were probably like, I don't know, 11 and 13 or mm-hmm. something like that. And he walked up to us and he goes, Yunzer Halls. And I was like, uh, I mean, my mom was. Yeah. <laughs> he was like, I can spot it from a mile away. <laughs> so, I, gosh, we, I kind of love that. Though. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize how like unique we were, but apparently he was <laughs> able to spot us from a mile away. I would have guessed um, he would have known we were Alice's by our ears because the Alice's are always known for big ears, but I didn't get those, praise the Lord. So <laughs> I didn't guess that that's what it was. But Hall and Alice are my um, my granddad and my granny, and so that's where my mm-hmm. oldest daughter's name comes from, Hollis. I love that. Yep, 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 yep. Uh, my next book, this I have a young adult book that came out in October this past year in 2020 called what cat lost and the sequel who cat loved comes out in September. So, um, it, the book fast forwards in time in the life of my characters about five years in several points throughout the book, they talk about the mountains and how they're a part of you and how they call you home. And so, you know, people always ask like, are these books autobiographical? No, they're really fiction, but so much of me is in it, right? So much of my own, my life, my perspective, my experiences, little, little bits, little bits and pieces of myself are scattered in both of my books, my children's book and also in my young adult series. Um, but it becomes a part of you and you carry it with you. And even when I lived in New York City, um, you know, the mountains were never too far from my mind. My husband and I joked, we were, we were so poor. Like we were brand brand new baby newlyweds. When we moved to New York city, I was in grad school. He was just starting his career. I was 21. Let's see, 21. When we were apartment shopping there, I guess we signed the lease on our apartment on my 22nd birthday. And we did not have the money that year to go home for Thanksgiving or Christmas. I was in school, I was working, um, but at Christmas time in New York City, Christmas tree stands pop up all around the city, and they set them up on the corners, and so I couldn't walk anywhere without smelling Christmas trees. Um, It was particularly bad when I smelled Frasier first, because that's what we grow on our farm, and so there was a big Christmas tree stand right on my way to class where they put a huge sign that said, North Carolina Frasier Furs. And I had to walk right by it, and I had to smell the Christmas trees, and it was so nostalgic that by the time I got to class, tears would be streaming down my face, and people would be like, what is wrong? And I'd have to say, I smelled Christmas trees. (laughs) Um, And so my, like, Brian, my husband, it got so bad where he would, like, map out what route we would take to walk to church or to walk to 
the grocery store. There was actually no other route to the grocery store. We were one block away. Um, So I had to pass Christmas trees no matter what. But we would try to avoid the Christmas tree stands if I was like, I didn't put on waterproof mascara. I can't cry today. Um, That's how bad it was. But I think that to me is the perfect representation of how much I longed for the mountains. Um, So I think whether you're from here or you moved here later in life, there's something about this place that just becomes a part of you. And, um, you know, at at times we all feel like outsiders. That's just a part of human nature. Um, But I guarantee that anyone who's from away, from off, sometimes you hear people say, are you from off? And so any people from off, they'll they'll find their people here too. Thanks again for being here, and we'll see you next time on Fringe Appalachia.